from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. It gives me great pleasure as chair of the um, Air Law Group Middle East Subcommittee, bit of a mouthful, um, to welcome Rick Ward tonight um, to speak to us all about open skies, a very pressing issue, or has been for the last 12 months. Um, Rick Ward is Senior Vice President of Emirates Group. You might think big airline, but it's not only that. You've got the airline business and all the associated companies, and Rick gets to deal with that every day. <laughs> Quite a big job. Um, Rick first came to Emirates at the end of the 90s and um, <clears throat> spent about five years working for the legal team uh, into the early 2000s and then went back to Australia, on to New York with Deloitte's and then came back as vice president in um, 2007. I know this because I was there too. <laughs> he successfully put up with me as one of his reports for five years. Um, He's, a, he's, he's Australian, but don't let that hold, don't hold that against him. He's New South Wales and Victoria State qualified, as well as a New York attorney. He's also a fellow of the Governance Institute of Australia, and I think he dabbles with the IBA every now and again. I may be Used wrong. To. Used to. Oh, that's dropped off. Um, so that's that's Rick. I'm sure we'll have a very interesting speech tonight. I'm dying to hear what the uh, Emirates view is on the open skies debate. Um, just a few words about um, the Beaumont name lecture. Um, Major Beaumont um, is a big name, obviously, in aviation. Um, he was born in 1884, became a solicitor in 1910, a lot quicker than I did, actually, um, and then became a, an aviation lawyer for Imperial Airways in 1924. Um, I'm sure we all use Shawcross and Beaumont quite frequently. Um, he, it's his name on the door with that, and also Beaumont and Son, which some of us may, may remember if we're old enough. Um, so we regularly... The, the lecture attracts high-ranking individuals, Charles Haddon Cave, George Tompkins Jr., and Tony Tyler of IATA fame have been and gone in the past. And this year we managed to get Rick Ward to give us the Middle East perspective on open skies. So without further ado, please welcome Rick to the podium. Thank, thank you, Carol. I'm hoping when I flip over this that my speech is still inside. It is. Um, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, it is certainly a, a, an honour and a pleasure to be here tonight um, and uh, to be given the opportunity to, uh, to address you this evening. Um, before I move on to tonight's sort of topic of, of discussion, I just wanted to take a, a moment to, uh, to acknowledge the work of, of Major Kenneth Beaumont. Obviously, Carol has, has, has mentioned it, it's the Beaumont Lecture, and, and that's in whose name we are gathered here tonight. Um, as you all know, you know, Major Beaumont was a key figure in aviation law from 1924 until his death in 1965. He played a major role in legal committees for IATA and ICAO over 20 years, including being president at the Warsaw Convention in 1929 and the sorry, Warsaw Conference in 1929 and the Chicago Conference in 1944, two uh, fundamental moments in international air law. From a personal perspective, um, I came to aviation law somewhat accidentally 
when as a, a young lawyer I was sent halfway across the world to work for a small but uh, up-and-coming Middle Eastern airline based in Dubai. On my first day in the Emirates office, I was handed uh, two volumes. I was, uh, was handed a copy of an IATA publication entitled Principal Instruments of the Warsaw System um, and told where to find our loose-leaf versions of Shawcross and Beaumont. I was confidently informed that everything I needed to know was contained within those two sources, and, uh, and I'd be right. <laughs> um, obviously, both of those fundamentally based upon the work of, uh, of Major Beaumont. Um, at the time, our claims work was also done by Beaumont and Sons, so uh, picking up on Carol's comment there, I unfortunately am old enough to remember that uh, I've, I've crossed a line. Um, but even for a young Australian lawyer working in the Middle East, there was a strong connection to the work of, of this pioneering aviation lawyer. So moving on to the topic of tonight's lecture. Um, I welcome the opportunity to be here to, to speak to you all about the open skies debate that we've all heard so much about. Uh, well, I assume you've, uh, you've heard about it. I've, I've heard an awful lot about it for the last 12 months. Uh, since the publication last year of the 55-page white paper by the three uh, US legacy carriers, Delta, United and American Airlines. Um, there's been an enormous amount said over the last 12 months on this topic. Um, so I just wanted to do, take the opportunity to, to cut through some of the rhetoric and address, address the factual and legal issues from the Emirates side, um, because there certainly has been a lot of rhetoric. Um, we've all heard repeated, um, I say ad nauseum, uh, the sound bites uh, uh, referring to $42 billion of government subsidies, wheelbarrows of cash, uh, the largest proven trade violation in United States history, um, you know, flights being operated on an entirely uncommercial basis, um, US carriers being overwhelmed by a tidal wave of Gulf carrier capacity. Um, sounds bad, right? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't the government want to take action? Um, more recently, these themes have also been picked up uh, by interested parties in Europe, repeating the US allegations to some degree without further analysis or consideration. Um, all, of, all of that tends to gloss over the fact that uh, this is a highly complicated issue. Um, and not a simple case of us versus them. A number of other parties in the US and Europe have come out strongly in support of open skies and maintaining a strong pro-competitive environment, including JetBlue, FedEx, the, uh, the US Business Travel Association, number of airports and other trade associations. So what I'd like to do over, hopefully, if I keep the pace right over the next 30 minutes or so, is just take a little look at, uh, a little, look a little more closely into the facts as they apply to the Emirates side. And how, and how these effects apply to the legal frameworks that uh, are applicable in the open skies context. When we do so, you'll find that uh, in the case of Emirates, there are no subsidies, nothing has been proven, um, and the allegations are based on sort of inaccurate assertions, assumptions, and legal misinterpretations. So I thought I'd take the chance to sort of just step through what actually has been said about Emirates um, by, the, by the legacy carriers in their white paper. So let's break it down for, for Emirates in particular. While the legacy carriers prefer to refer to the headline-grabbing amount of $42 billion, um, the amount they could throw together for Emirates comes to $6 billion. This is allegedly made up of $2.7 billion in government assumption of fuel hedging losses, $2.3 billion in subsidised airport charges, $1.9 billion from union bans resulting in below-market labour costs, unquantified allegations of related party transactions, 
um, at less than adequate remuneration and a grab bag of other miscellaneous uh, allegations of unfair advantage, either through local, local regulation or uh, taxes or legal or regulatory frameworks. Many of these allegations are also dressed up uh, in the spectre of a lack of financial transparency. Um, simple fact on that point is that Emirates has published fully audited financial res results statements since 1993. And what these financial statements clearly show is that Emirates is not subsidised and is run on a fully commercial and consistently profitable basis. So what I wanted to do, again, just to, to briefly just have a look at each of these main allegations and step through, say, the facts from the Emirates side. So legacy carriers claim that Dubai government shielded Emirates from massive losses uh, on fuel hedging contracts um, after a sharp decline in global oil prices in 2008-2009. This allegation is based on a, a, a number of assumptions made in a report by Capital Trading. Um, it is true that when fuel prices uh, plunged in 2008, that, uh, that uh, Emirates and its shareholder, ICD, agreed that fuel hedging contracts would be transferred to ICD. So that non-realised paper losses on those contracts under mark-to-market mark -mark accounting did not present a misleading portrayal of Emirates' actual operations. Um, this transfer is clearly referred to in the, the Emirates financial statements for that, uh, for that year. Uh, notwithstanding that transfer, all actual payments on those contracts at maturity were ultimately paid using Emirates' own cash resources um, through dividends paid to, to ICD specifically for that purpose. Um, in addition, Emirates at all times uh, had sufficient cash and credit to meet all calls for collateral in relation to those fuel trades and actually provided up to $1.6 billion of letters of credit to, to ICD to meet cash collateral, collateral requirements along the way. Uh, neither ICD nor the Dubai government uh, absorbed any losses from those transactions and ICD ultimately made a profit uh, when, the, when the price of fuel went up the next year um, and, uh, and those transactions were completed. Um, many other carriers were, were affected by fuel hedging arrangements that year. Um, Delta itself chose to announce its financial results uh, by excluding mark-to-market uh, -market losses and other actual fuel hedging losses, um, as they state in their uh, financial statements, in order to represent financial results related to operations and to help investors evaluate the company's recurring operational performance. One other of the more often repeated, uh, especially, especially more recently, more repeated claims is that Emirates receives goods from related parties at less than adequate remuneration. And this one seems to be getting a lot of, a lot of airplay at the moment. Um, the legacy carries a claim that virtually every supplier of goods, services and capital that Emirates needs is a related party. They then go on to note that our related party transactions in the, the most recent year when they produced their paper, 2013-14, represented around 10% of, of Emirates' operating costs. So notwithstanding the disparity between virtually every and 10%, uh, the core allegation here is based on no actual facts. The logic behind this claim goes a little like this. Emirates does not state in its financial statements that its related party transactions are at arm's length. Therefore, Emirates' related party transactions are not at arm's length. Um, it's as simple as that. The Actual accounting standard doesn't require you to state whether they are or aren't. It just says if you do state they're at arm's length, you need to have it, you need to have it audited. Um, uh, so the, uh, there is a fundamental failure of logic in this argument. However, understanding that this was something that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the optic was easily fixed on, as a result of the, the controversy in our 2014-15 financial statements, 
we, we entered the statement that the, that the, the transactions were, the Rotor Party transactions were all at arm's length and, and received a, a, a clean audit sign-off on those statements. In addition to this, we did, a, we did a detailed analysis of a number of specific allegations as to, to related party transactions referred to by the legacy carriers relating to the purchase of fuel, leasing of aircraft and provision of ground handling services. These analyses showed quite clearly that Emirates pays Enoch, a related fuel supplier, substantially the same price as it pays to suppliers like BP, Shell, Chevron and Emojet at Dubai International Airport. Um, even more interestingly, it showed that Emirates pays more for its fuel in Dubai than it does at most of the airports it flies to in the United States. Um, Emirates leases aircraft from Dubai Aerospace Enterprise on uh, substantially comparable terms as the same aircraft leased from an unrelated party at the same time, and that Donata actually earns a higher profit on its services from Emirates at Dubai International Airport than it does on other carriers. Um, at the very least, we can hope that this analysis will put, put to bed once and for all the persistent but unfounded rumour that Emirates has access to unlimited free fuel, a rumour that always failed to consider that there was no aviation fuel refining facilities in Dubai or the UAE, and that Emirates uploads at least half of its fuel at airports outside Dubai from unrelated uh, third parties. Okay. Legacy carriers also asserted that Dubai International Airport user charges... Uh, failed to recover the full cost of infrastructure and that this disproportionately advantages Emirates um, in its hub operations in Dubai. They also assert that the collection of a passenger fee on departing but not con uh, connecting passengers is also a sub subsidy to Emirates. The fact here is that the Open Skies Agreement does not uh, require, sorry, that user fees are just, reasonable and non-discriminatory and shall not exceed the full cost of providing the appropriate facilities. Um, as clearly said in our response to the White Paper, user charges at Dubai International are applied on a non-discriminatory basis through a transparent tariff-setting process. As to the claim that these fees are too low, the law actually prevents parties from charging more than full costs. Um, it does not set a floor on charges or require airports to, to, recover, uh, to cover their full costs. Consultants engaged by the legacy carriers ignored this and found a subsidy in the assertion that the airport charges are too low. The reality is that many airports worldwide do not charge to cover their full costs, um, including many airports in the United States, and the US DOT and FAA do not require them to do so. Okay. The, uh, the allegation of subsidy based on the passenger fees uh, ignores the fact that there is no legal obligation to collect fees on connecting passengers. Major Asian hubs such as Hong Kong and Kuala Lumpur exempt transfer passengers. Uh, from passenger services charges, and passengers transferring at airports in the UK, Hong Kong and Taipei are also exempted from airport or air passenger taxes in some cases. Uh, finally, the legacy carriers also allege that, the, that Dubai provides an artificial cost advantage to Emirates through the structure of its labour law. Um, even they admit that this doesn't, uh, this doesn't constitute a subsidy, so they bracket it in with a, uh, a miscellaneous grab bag of other smaller allegations as an unfair practice or an unfair cost advantage. Um, uh, this, this is because neither the United States nor the UAE has ever agreed that labour laws can confer a subsidy. Um, there's no precedent under an Open Skies Agreement or under the Open Skies Agreement or any, under any international trade agreement for treating differences in national labour practices um, as a subsidy. The United States has always strongly objected to such efforts as US labour laws depart from international labour organisation uh, conventions in numerous respects. Um, 
I'd, I'd uh, posit to say that given the significant differences between the labour law practices applied in the European Union and in the United States, the application of this standard could lead to some interesting discussions. So that's, uh, that's a sort of a quick skip through, you know, uh, the, the, the factual side from Emirates' side. So I'd like to move on now to a sort of a, a quick review of the legal framework uh, around which legacy carriers' allegations are based. Um, more specifically, what is the correct legal standard that should be applied here? Um, the white paper relies on a, a WTO uh, framework. Why? Because this is a legal framework that most conveniently fits their narrative regarding unfair competition from the three Gulf carriers. However, this is the wrong legal standard um, and does not apply to air transport services. Pardon me. The legacy carriers cite the WTO Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures, the SCM Agreement, as the operative set of rules for airline subsidy issues. This is wrong. The SCM Agreement applies to goods, not services, um, and air transport most clearly is a service. Services generally are covered by a different WTO Agreement, uh, the General Agreement on Trade in Services, GATS. However, the GATS explicitly excludes air transport services. In fact, the United States has strongly opposed the inclusion of air transport services in WTO, free trade and other trade agreements. Moreover, even if GATS did apply to air transport services, uh, which it does not, GATS does not include any rules on subsidies for services since those rules have not been able to be negotiated between the various uh, countries who are the party to these agreements. So, obviously that leaves the question, what is the correct legal standard that, uh, that we should be considering here? Air services between the United States and the UAE are governed by an open skies agreement and it's the terms of that document that should provide the, the appropriate legal framework. Um, even when referring to this document, legacy carriers misinterpret the legal requirements. According to them, government subsidies violate Article 11 of the Open Skies Agreement, which addresses the fair and equal opportunity to compete for carriers of each party. This is not the correct article. Subsidies are expressly addressed in Article 12, which sets out specific procedures dealing with artificially low prices um, due to, amongst other things, direct or indirect government subsidy or support. Um, Article 11 contains no reference to subsidies, so Article 12 contains the exclusive remedy for subsidy concerns under customary international law. What is clear from Article 12 is that government subsidy or support is not itself prohibited, but only constitutes an issue if it results in prices that are artificially low, and both parties to the agreement agree that it gives rise to a legitimate need for protection. Um, in its interpretation of Article 11's reference to fair and equal opportunity, uh, to compete, the legacy carriers are choosing to equate this with a generalised level playing field in all aspects, um, something that's not intended to cover and that would cause more issues, in our opinion, on the US side than in the UAE. Article 11 clearly deals with access to a market, uh, which Dubai clearly complies with through its long-standing open skies policy at Dubai International Airport. With regards to the allegations about airport charges and fees at Dubai International, again, the WTO provisions do not apply, but if they did, they specifically provide that a government's provision of general infrastructure, like an airport, um, is not a subsidy. The correct legal framework, as I referred to slightly earlier for, the, uh, for this allegation, is Article 10 of the Open Skies Agreement um, that expressly addresses airport user charges and requires that these must be just, reasonable, not unjustly discriminatory and equitably proportioned among categories of users. 
Also, those user charges must, may, not, may reflect but not exceed the full costs of providing the facilities and services at the airport. Um, as has now been widely acknowledged, the, uh, the Open Skies Agreement does not allow for any unilateral freeze on traffic rights for any economic or commercial reasons. So the initial calls from the US carriers for a unilateral freeze on any new, new, new uh, landing rights, additional landing rights, would have been a clear breach of the agreement by the United States. And uh, it's not just Emirates that is, that is saying this. Um, in response to the current debate, the WTO's Director of Trade and Services has also said that the aviation sector is outside the scope of WTO. Further, an Air China executive has, has, has commented that WTO-like processes will be difficult to apply in air transportation since aviation is considered by many countries an instrument of national policy. Putting paid to much of the legacy carrier rhetoric that this is an issue that only affects the three Gulf carriers and could not possibly spread to any other country or carrier. Again from the WTO, applying these frameworks to aviation would require major changes to many national stances, including US and European limits on foreign ownership of airlines. Those restrictions would need to be lifted as they don't comply with global trade agreements. Another critical element of the debate is the fact that there has been no harm caused here, either to the broader objectives of open skies um, or to the individual legacy carriers themselves. Um, even if WTO legal standards are applicable to the case, you know, the legacy carriers would have to be able to show that there was actual harm arising from the alleged subsidies. This they can't do on a number of grounds, um, uh, the most obvious of which is that the three US carriers are making record profits. Um, their record profits announced last year, when all of this started, have been backed up by even greater record profits in, uh, in, in, in 2015. Um, each of the three airlines have variously produced record results, record financial performance and results up 50% versus previous records sent in 2014, amounting to a combined net income of $16.7 billion for, for 2015. Um, these are not airlines that are suffering harm in the current environment and in need of any further protection from competition. The, argu the argument that Emirates is harming the, uh, the US legacy carriers rests largely on their claim that the US carriers and their joint venture partners have lost market share on a number of regional routings, some generalised statements about unsustainable capacity growth on our side, um, and an argument that Emirates diverts traffic rather than stimulates it. Um, we undertook a, a significant amount of analysis. Obviously, there was uh, economists on all sides uh, on, on these issues, and the detailed results of this I won't, obviously won't go into with... Uh, we need a lot more time than we have, but uh, they can be seen uh, in our response document. Uh, one of the key observations I, I guess I would make is that, uh, is that using market share of criteria for harm um, can be deceptive or is deceptive. Firstly, it relies on the premise that, uh, that the legacy carriers are entitled to maintain their historical share of a market um, in the face of competition and that any reduction in the market share is because passengers are being stolen from them. Secondly, it's also possible, if you think about the maths, to lose market share in a growing market while still growing your business in absolute numbers. Um, while we don't have time tonight to go into intricate detail on the, on the economics and route analysis, the results of our review of the, uh, of the statistics of absolute passenger numbers on routes into the United States before and after our entry into the market shows in every case that there was a growth in absolute bookings um, after our entry in all cases. 
also wanted to make mention of one specific route, obviously, that, uh, that has received, uh, you may recall, has received a disproportionate amount of attention, uh, which is our Dubai-Milan New York service. Um, this, uh, this particular service was, uh, was subject to litigation in Italy in 2013, which eventually supported the, the Italian government's grant of these rights to Emirates. As part of the open skies debate, Delta has repeatedly attacked our exercise of these fifth freedom rights uh, as somehow being contrary to open skies principles and claiming that these rights are outdated in the age of long-range aircraft and were never intended to be used the way that Emirates does. Um, this entirely ignores the fact that Delta and United both exercise fifth freedom rights via their hubs in Narita, Japan, in their trans-Pacific operations and other carriers such as Air New Zealand and Singapore exercising fifth freedom rights. The broad statements that this route can't possibly be economical also ignores the fact that there is a significant increase in bookings from Milan to New York in the nine months following us, uh, immediately following our commencement of these flights. And uh, the legacy carriers and their JV partners themselves enjoyed a 46% increase in overall bookings during that period. So while the carriers present impressive sounding figures, um, there is clearly no harm being inflicted. They all enjoy strong antitrust immunised alliances in their transatlantic routes, delivering customers to their European JV partners and strongly protected domestic markets. Far from being overwhelmed by Emirates and the other two Gulf carriers, they're enjoying record-breaking profits that any airline in the world would be happy with. There's a lot more that can be and has been said uh, about the benefits, unfair or otherwise, that the US carriers enjoy at the hands of their own government. Um, I don't intend to go into, into any of that this evening or any details on that, as the intention was to focus specifically on what, what, what has been said about Emirates and the allegations on, against Emirates. Um, all I'd like to say here is that uh, if these various benefits and advantages are not subsidies in the hands of the US carriers, as those airlines have insisted, um, then how could the same or substantially similar alleged benefits or advantages be subsidies in the hands of Emirates? So... Where to from here? Um, a few final observations that I'd like to make. Um, a vast majority of, of countries with open skies agreements with the United States uh, had government-owned carriers uh, or carriers that received government support at the time that, uh, that, uh, that, that the US entered into open skies agreements with them. I understand it's close to 85% of countries who are in that situation. Many countries remain government-owned, as we are, and, and many others in receipt of government support. Yet the legacy carriers would have us believe that it is only the UAE and Qatar that this debate could ever apply to. We are the only global outliers. Um, this is very important that they have to present this in aberration rather than a broader attack on, on open skies. Um, picking up on a few more recent comments, American CEO has said uh, he doesn't know if Chinese state-owned carriers receive government subsidies. This is despite the fact that the four main Chinese airlines report government subsidies in their annual reports. Um, he refers to the imbalance of US flights to the Gulf compared to Gulf flights to the US and says that the Chinese flight balance is different. This shows their interest, in my mind, in reciprocity of outcome, not open skies. Again, this clearly shows the attitude that Emirates is uh, as a carrier that is uh, deemed to have grown beyond what is our market. Delta has also chipped in on this topic, stating that the Chinese carriers are just a totally different ballgame, um, as they are growing at the same rate as other airlines and are operated commercially. Even the press that was reporting on those comments had to point out that these Chinese carriers are majority state-owned, 
openly receive government subsidies and benefit from expensive airport facilities financed by the Chinese government. Delta's CEO has also chosen to uh, draw a distinction between the UAE and Emirates and uh, Singapore and Singapore Airlines, um, stating that the difference between Singapore and these places in the Middle East is that Singapore has a very large population and is the centre of a large population base. Fact is, and I have to turn to Google for this, the UAE's population at 9.3 million is almost twice that of Singapore at 5.7 million. And Dubai is both within a four-hour flight of one-third of the world's population and an eight-hour flight of two-thirds of the world's population. Again, the facts are as much a victim in this campaign as the consumer is. So the question remains, um, have, we, have we heard all this before and are we going to hear it again? Um, I'm sure there were similar protests when KLM dared to uh, pioneer its hub model and grow beyond its Dutch home market. Um, let me also take you to some comments made on 14 January 1984. Um, the chairman is annoyed by suggestions that SIA's commercial success is not real, that the airline enjoys subsidy from the Singapore government. You know. Skipping forward to 10th of December 2005, also sees Singapore Airlines again, rejecting comments by the Australian Prime Minister that SIA has an advantage of unfair government subsidy. April 2009 sees Cathay Pacific complaining of government financial support for 80% state-owned Air New Zealand. Yet the three US legacy carriers would have us believe that the only three airlines in the world possibly affected by this issue are Emirates, Qatar and Etihad. The issue of airline ownership and competitive advantages, whether natural or artificial, is a, is a much more complicated one than that and is very hard to reduce just an us versus them equation. So the bottom line here for Emirates um, is that Dubai has operated a wholly open skies environment since well before the creation of Emirates. And Emirates has had to grow its business from the start in this highly competitive background. Um, it has done so through the provision of world-class customer service and effective use of a long-haul-to-long-haul -haul business model utilising its geographically advantageous hub in Dubai. Um, Emirates is not government subsidised. We're fully financially transparent. We're run on a fully commercial and consistently profitable basis and our operations are conducted wholly in accordance with the terms of the US-UAE Open Skies Agreement. Thank you for your attention tonight and thank you for the opportunity to come and address this uh, very honourable crowd. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.